Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So I always believe that someday the people would storm Wall Street, not just occupy it, but like really own it. But I never thought this revolution would begin in a battle over a company called GameStop. Yet here we are, ordinary working people, many of them, in fact, people out of work in this pandemic, took on the big Wall Street hedge fund and beat it at its own fancy financial games. GameStop, indeed. Some of these working stiffs were just day trading to make a buck the way that the wealthy do. Others were filling in endless empty hours of lockdown with the new sport of retail stock trading. But it is no coincidence that one of the most popular platforms for this trading is named Robinhood, steal from the rich. Hmm. Many of these traders were clear about their motives. Eat the rich. One stay-at-home mom said after making $1,700 burying, or excuse me, buying, also burying GameStop. You probably already know the basics of this story. GameStop is a company that the smart money on Wall Street had left for dead. Who buys computer games in a mall anymore? Who goes to a mall anymore, right? Even I knew that, and I don't play games. Sorry, I will eventually. <laughs> Hi there, Twitch. A hedge fund <laughs> called uh, Melvin Capital started betting that GameStop their stock would fall and fall. This is a very popular Wall Street play. Find a weak company and help drive a stake through its heart by betting against it. But this time, a bunch of day traders, some of them rallied to the fight on Reddit, took the other side and started buying GameStop, driving the stock up. Melvin Capital lost billions of dollars and earlier this week had to call in for help from two other hedge funds to bail it out of its bad bets on GameStop. These kinds of fights happen all the time between Wall Street titans, but this was different. Quote, the power dynamics are shifting on Wall Street. Robert Reich did not say that. That was the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal said that this morning on its front page, it is an historic and euphoric moment for us regular people. But like any revolutionary event, this is also a perilous moment. First of all, the financial system is fighting back, resisting these traders. Their big gains in GameStop can evaporate as quickly as they came. And that will be sad when moms and cooks and law students suddenly find their winnings gone. But this is a bigger point. There is a bigger point there. This was an exciting skirmish in the war over wealth in America but it only highlighted the real problem, the rigged financial system that funnels the money to those who already have the money. Sometimes corporate media says radical things in spite of themselves. The New York Times today, take a look at this headline. How the pandemic hurt workers more than investors. The story has some remarkable numbers in it. My favorite is this, wealth in the country, in this country right now is so concentrated at the top that the run-up in the stock market during the pandemic produced $3.4 billion for the top 10% of families. The other 90% of us, oh, we got $600 million to split among all of us. By the way, the story really sharpened my thinking on one key issue. The Wall Street types always like to defend their machinations by saying that stock ownership is really democratic these days because we all have so much stock in our pensions and IRAs. So I figured I was the only one left out but my FOMO got the better of me. But guess what? Most of us are left out right now. 
A study found that in the middle class, literally those in the middle percentile, only half the families even owned any stock or pension funds with stock in them. And even among those middle class families who owned some stock, the amount they owned averaged $13,000, which means this big stock surge is worth, this big stock surge is worth, wait for it, $2,000. So this myth that we are all benefiting from the great American stock market is just bullshit. Now I won't lie, day traders humiliating a big, a big hedge fund it feels amazing. I'm on Twitter, like laughing with you guys, sharing the memes just as much. But we can't go home now and start clipping coupons and collecting dividends like the capitalists. It is still the system that sucks. The day traders turn the system against the rulers it's this week. And bravo for them. They expose them. But we still need to change that system. Stocks and bonds are meant to reflect real ownership in real companies trying to do real work. That most important gives real people jobs and living wages. The financial markets are supposed to be a way to direct capital to the companies that will make the best use of it. But as John Maynard Keynes said 100 years ago, it just doesn't really happen that way. When your markets turn into giant casinos that magnify the wealth of the wealthy, there is something fundamentally broken. When your markets put quarterly returns ahead of rising temperatures around the globe, something is fundamentally broken. When your markets soar, when a pandemic is killing people, 400,000 in this country alone, something is fundamentally broken. We have a huge job a huge job of work to get done in this country, building a public health system that treats everyone, not just those who can pay for it, building a green energy system that eliminates carbon emissions, rebuilding our cities with a focus on justice for people, not profits for developers. But we can't get this done unless we stop worrying about short-term profits. Hell, they aren't even real profits. They are short-term windfalls created, manufactured by, manuf by financial manipulation. It is mystical. This week, some bit of those windfalls went to regular people, but that's just this week, and I'm glad for them, and I hope they will spend a few of their new dollars <laughs> as patrons here on the Nomi Key Show. I'm kidding. Uh, but we do need to go a lot bigger than just beating some hedge funds if we want to put this country on a course to true economic justice. We have to move beyond these short-term plans. Quarterly dividends, quarterly returns, they've affected every single aspect of our country. And it's just not working. So we've got to do something big. And I'm going to start with calling on Wall Street Chuck. I would love to hear his response to today. Wall Street Chuck, Chuck the leader of the Senate, will he hold hearings? Will he hold Wall Street accountable? He has the power to do so. So let's start right there. All right, we'll be right back after this break. John Nichols is in the house. We're going to talk to him about impeachment. And then we have Rep. Rabin and Ren Chowdhury and artist he was here to talk about uh, his latest music. We'll be right back after this break. 
Welcome back to the Nomi Q Show. We are so excited to have one of our favorite guests, John Nichols. He's the national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and he's the author of many books, uh, most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace. Uh, and I, I, I believe he also authored a book a few years ago on the impeachment, which is what I actually want to talk about with you, John. Welcome to the show. You're on mute, just so you know. Oh, you're on mute, John. I can't wait. My deep apologies. So often that's okay. Mute. It's the Zoom world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm I'm honored to be with you, Nomiki. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I, you know, you've written about the impeachment before. Uh, one of these 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 great, uh, even just you know a few weeks ago, you you wrote about uh, urging the Trump impeachment again. We start an impeachment process again next week. I know there's a lot of news going on right now, uh, but <laughs> what do we think is going to happen? Like, why is this important for this country to, to, to prosecute uh, and hold Donald Trump accountable for his actions? Well, it's supremely important. And the reason it's so important is twofold. Number one, um, we're not a monarchy. And uh, of all the uh, failings and weaknesses of the founding moment, and there were many. Um, the one thing that they got right was that uh, we're not a monarchy. Uh, our presidency is supposed to be limited and constrained. And when a president steps out of line, that president is supposed to be held to account. Uh, that's why the impeachment power was drawn. That's why it is so broad. Uh, one of the broadest impeachment powers in the world, uh, done so intentionally. Uh, that's why there is no limit on uh, what you would impeach, try, or remove someone for, nor is there any limit on when you would do it. You don't have to do it during a presidency. You can certainly do it afterwards to suggest Interesting. is alive, a fantasy. Um, and so we have an impeachment power drawn for precisely the moment we are in. And that's so that's number one. Number two, and, and just as importantly, is that accountability drives policy. And this is one of the kind of lost realities of our politics. Uh, presidents who say, oh, we're all just gonna heal, let's all unify when they take office uh, and try to put all of the failings, uh, lawlessness, high crimes and misdemeanors of their predecessors into a box and push that aside, they don't do well. It doesn't work well. Uh, because the fact of the matter is that to advance policy, i.e. a big change, you need to make it clear to people that those who held power before did the wrong thing, that they abused their power, that they were inappropriate in their approaches. Now, the president who understood this the best was Franklin Roosevelt. And Franklin Roosevelt was blaming Herbert Hoover for the Depression in wow. 1945. So Roosevelt had been in office for, for a dozen years, and he was still saying, yeah, yeah, but just remember what got us here. But what, why didn't he move forward with impeachment? What, was there the ability to impeach uh, Hoover then or a conversation about impeachment? There wasn't, there wasn't such a necessity to impeach Hoover, right? And, and, it's, and so I'm, when I talk about accountability, it's not just um, impeachment. It can be other tools. Uh, what Roosevelt focused on was holding Hoover and Wall Street to account. They set up the Pecora Commission. The Pecora Commission brought in uh, hundreds of bankers and banking people. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
during the New Deal, you had several thousand bankers and people associated with the finance industry tried and convicted for wrongdoing. And so the point is that accountability drives policy. And so in this case, as regards Donald Trump, impeachment is the right form of accountability because Donald Trump governed as a neo-fascist and finished off um, with a, you know, literally cheering on a fascist riot. It's why you hold someone to account. If you don't, in a circumstance like that, how are you ever going to hold anybody to account for anything? So why is it, do you think the Biden administration is more focused on, uh, I mean, obviously moving forward, he's got a lot of, of, of crises that he has to deal with, but this idea of unity and, you know, and he clarified that this week, um, but why, why do you think that they are, they're so reluctant to impeach Trump? I mean, there's some theories out there right now that, you know, if you start investigating, uh, there might be you know, financial ties that the Democrats also have, you know, weird uh, connections to. Uh, let's not forget Donald Trump used to give to the Democrats all the time, and he was in a Democratic town. And um, a lot of these relationships were, were born out of relationships from New York. So... Um, is that, I mean, do you think that's the reason or, or is there something else that we're missing? I don't. I, I think that, that Democrats are just spineless. Um, I think they lack courage. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I wish it was more complicated and maybe it is. I'm, I'm certainly respectful of investigative reporters and others who may turn something up. But, uh, you know, my, my instinct from covering politics for a very long time and, and looking at a lot of these issues is that uh, the Democrats don't like impeachment. They don't like uh, a lot of accountability measures, in part because uh, the Democrats see themselves as a managerial party. They see themselves as the party that kind of manages the status quo. And so when you come to power, you know, you say, ah, yeah, yeah, we know some bad things happened before. And, you know, we're glad those guys are gone. But, you know, we don't really want to shake things up too much. We don't want to really, you know, suggest that our system is incredibly vulnerable and that if the wrong person comes to power, they might not only undermine our democracy, but also uh, you know, thwart efforts to uh, create a fair and equitable and just country. And so I think that impeachment and the trying and the convicting of a sitting president, this whole process, as well as, as, frankly, investigations into criminal wrongdoing by members of, an, of a former administration, that scares a lot of Democratic leaders. They don't like the idea because they- I Is think, it because they, they think yeah. it could be thrown back at them? Not like oh, the yeah, Republicans sometimes. haven't done this before, by the way. It's like... Sometimes, right? You know, this sort of gentleman's agreement, right? Everybody gets along, right? You know? um, so sometimes it's that. But again, I can't emphasize um, this disease of managerialism, this notion that, that um, yeah, Republicans are the ones who come in and shake things up. Democrats are the ones who come in and clean things up, right? And that sounds really good. That sounds, oh, yeah, tidying up after the mess was made. But the fact is, no, the mess remains. It just, you know, you put a nice face on it. What you have to do, again, is to hold people to account You've got to be very blunt about it. And you got to say the things that happened in that last administration, those will happen again. And sometimes they've even happened in Democratic administrations. And so we want to change all of this. We want to upend the whole thing. That's how you get real change. 
And you do have to link accountability to policy. These things have to go together. I'll give you an example, Mamiki. Um, you know, there should be, at this point, a major investigation into the handling of the pandemic, the handling of the economic uh Seems simple. It seems like that's not something that necessarily alienates all the Republicans or Mitch McConnell or any of the relationships for this gentleman. It's throw. I mean, why won't the Republicans just throw Trump under the bus? Yeah. Well, there's a reason for that, because Trump, you know, it's a it's a subtlety here. Um, But, you know, Trump spoke for a lot of the Republican Party. You know, I mean, throwing him under the bus scares a lot of Republican leaders because they were always lying to their base, right? The, the leadership of the Republican Party was always saying, yeah, yeah, we're social conservatives and we believe in all the things you believe in, when in fact, all they wanted to do is cut taxes for Wall Street, right? I mean, and CEOs. Not like you can't do that as a Democrat, by the way. <laughs> oh, by the way, yeah, Democrats do, and that terrifies the Republicans. But, um, but this is the deal. And so what Trump did was come in and say, yeah, your leaders are lying to you. I'll... I'll give you what you really want. And he did. He gave them Supreme Court justices who are militantly anti-abortion rights, um, who want to turn back history on all sorts of issues. He amplified racism and xenophobia in ways that tragically, at least some portion of the Republican base um, attaches to, or even if they don't attach to it, can be influenced by it. And and so the, the reality is, that there's a lot of Republican leaders who are afraid of Trump on all sorts of levels. But this core concept that we were just talking about a second ago, this notion of uh, prosecuting either uh, through political means, i.e. investigation, censures, impeachments, things of that nature, uh, or through the actual legal processes of the country, prosecuting those who mishandled, deliberately mishandled a pandemic and who uh, profiteered off it, who set things up in ways that it certainly looks like their friends and even you know, their political allies benefited by it. That's the kind of stuff you should investigate. That's the kind of stuff you should, you know, if you find evidence of wrongdoing, you should throw the book at people. You know what? Americans love that. Americans- Or, or at least the coup. Them. You know, what? whether yeah, it's the pandemic or the coup, yeah, how no, are we not in a- no. And, and you know what, this is the, again, I'm not, I don't want to always reference Roosevelt, okay? But, you know, Roosevelt, when he ran for re-election in 1936, in one of his final speeches, one of the major speech broadcasts of the country, you know, said, yeah, you know, a lot of the guys over on Wall Street, the big banks, they're kind of mad at me. In fact, they, they say I'm the worst president around. I welcome their hatred. You know, I mean, you realize how freeing that is? how literally freeing it is to say, yeah, I welcome the hatred of the big bankers, of the CEOs, of those who would you know, profiteer off a war or profiteer off a depression or profiteer off a pandemic or fail us in such a moment. I, this is what's broken in our politics. What's broken in our politics is that when Democrats come to power um, too frequently, they don't say, you know, to the elites, to the, the power stops here. <laughs> and also I welcome their hatred, you know? Yeah. And I welcome her. Um, 
I'm old enough to remember George W. Bush. And uh-huh. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember 2008, uh, not only coming out of the Iraq war uh, and, and him being in the most unpopular president prior to the economic collapse of 2008, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's how uh, we ended up getting Barack Obama. It wasn't so much just, just the economy. It was, you know, the fact yeah. that he, he soared because he was the anti-war, you know, presidential candidate. Um, nothing happened. That's right. And I just don't understand how at this point we haven't learned our lessons from that. And maybe it's because they've spent the last, you know, 10 years uh, reestablishing their image with, with, you know, the general public more than 10 years at this point, 12 years. Um, through going on like Ellen, you know, Ellen's show and hugging Michelle Obama, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but but are there lessons that can be learned out of not holding Bush accountable uh, for for the progressive movement in terms of pressuring the Democrats? Because if it's left to, you know, the Democrats, we know that they're not going to do anything. But if we pressure them the right way, will they? Well, maybe, and that's why we should. Um, I got to give, you know, incredibly high marks to Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, AOC, um, Mark Pocan, Pravilla Jayapal, a number of the progressives who really have been about accountability. And they've talked about it in much blunter ways. I, Cori Bush is just, you know, tearing it up. She I mean, showed up. <laughs> She's like, I'm, I'm ready so to go. glad she is there talking about even potentially expelling members of Congress who, you know, aligned with the insurrection on January 6th, things of this nature. And, and so you do see uh, progressives who are stepping up on this issue. They ought to step up more, and I'll tell you why. Um, the lesson of Bush is you're exactly right and very wise to go there. Um, it, Barack Obama came to the presidency, and he was all about, you know, we're post-partisanship. You know, we can all get along, and we're just going to let bygones be guy- bygones and move forward. Um, he said that to an administration that, or of an administration that led us into an illegal and immoral war and that took steps that ended up crashing the global economy, right? I mean, there's a lot to be held to account there. You know, there's plenty to work on. And, you know, one of the problems is that a lot of Democrats supported that war in the initial stages and also supported policies uh, going back into the Clinton administration that crashed the global economy. So you see this where this resistance comes from. It's like, oh, we don't want to dig too deep there, but that's wrong. The fact of the matter is you got to make the break. You take hold of your destiny and say the future begins today. We recognize mistakes were made in the past, but what we cannot allow to go away, what we cannot allow to be forgotten are severely damaging, truly destructive acts by those who have immediately left office, who've just, just stepped away and also by their economic and political allies. And you just focus in on that and talk about it. You can investigate it, that's one thing, but yes, you can prosecute and you can take political action as regards them. If you don't, if you don't, what you tell the American people is that politics is kind of just a game, right? Yeah, we came out ahead this time, we're here, but we're not, you know, it's not really about cleaning things up, it's just, you know, our side won, right? It's just like sports, more or less. And it's great when your team wins. But um, if you want politics to have meaning, if you want it to go deeper, what you have to do is say, yes, there are penalties for 
responding to a pandemic in ways that would leave 400,000 people dead, maybe 500,000 by the time this is done, that would infect millions. And where we know, as an example, where we know tremendous numbers, a tremendous portion of that number didn't have to die. So that's one thing. And then of course, a coup should be even easier to deal with. Um, before we wrap up, what are yeah. your predictions for the impeachment trials? Uh, and conviction? Yeah. What it's happens really if he's hard. convicted? Yeah, it's going to be really hard. Uh, the Republicans have decided, you know, that it's like a two-week rule, right? Two weeks after an attempted coup, doesn't matter anymore. And so even the Republicans who have spoken out in, in uh, good ways initially about it, Including McConnell, by the way, who said he incited an insurrection. (laughs) Exactly. And now they're all kind of scrambling over to, um, you know, defense of Trump or at least a refusal to hold to account and saying, eh, this is divisive and blah, blah, blah. And they're actually claiming the biggest lie of all, that this is unconstitutional. And Rand Paul, who really deserves, you know, a a dressing down, um, Rand Paul led this effort to claim that impeachment after the fact is somehow unconstitutional. It's not. He's lying. And more than that, he's a monarchist. The fact of the matter is, if you believe- Wow. If you, I'm <laughs> sorry. out the monarchist. <laughs> the monarchist. Look, we drew up the impeachment power to make sure that our presidents don't become kings, right. that they don't become sovereigns. And so after all this has happened, he's running around with a guy who says he may want to run for president again, right? You know, the deposed king who wants to come back. He's running around saying, oh, we can't hold him to account. That, that is exactly the opposite of why the impeachment power was written. Rand Paul claims to be a constitutional conservative. No, he's not. He's a monarchist. Um, be interesting if we could get um, Pence to turn on Trump. What does yeah. he have to lose? I mean, no. they wanted to hang him. I know they want to hang him, but he wants to run for president in 2024. This is the tragic reality. The desire to run for president in 2024 on the part of Republicans who fear that a large portion of the base backs Trump becomes a disease unto itself. That's why Josh Hawley said he would support the effort to overturn the election. That's why Ted Cruz stepped up. That's why Pence refused to do the 25th Amendment. That's why McConnell and these people, including Rand Paul, are doing what they're doing right now. And so they, they are so political that they refuse to be statesmen. John Nichols, the managerial class. I like that. The Democrats are the managerial political party and the, the, the Republicans are what the, the, the monarchists, the yeah, well, they're gas monarchists agents now. Yeah. Yeah. For now, yeah. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, for giving this primer, because we have to pay attention. Uh, There's so many crises. The impeachment seems so far off, but very important. We're glad that you've been focusing on it. I'm honored. Look at this great book, The Genius of Impeachment, The Founder's Cure for Royalists. This 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 is a classic. You may not even be able to, is this still being printed? It is still available. All right, let's go. Let's go uh, buy it out. <laughs> I hope you do, and it's uh, and my friends over at New Press will be thrilled if you do. Well, we do. Love Thank New you Press. so much for having me on, Nomiki, and I appreciate all the stuff that you do. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. Same here. <laughs> all right, guys, we will be right back with he was to discuss uh, his latest music, activist music, a little special today. We'll be right back.
All right, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So we have a special show today, a uh, special segment. This is fun. While uh, the show goes on, I know you guys are in the super chat. We're going to get to all the super chats uh, and the chats at the end of the show. And we're going to make up for yesterday as well. Uh, thank you guys for your love yesterday. I am getting more messages, uh, birthday messages, and very humbled, uh, a little bit overwhelmed. And I just want to say thank you. So he was, uh, is a musician and a progressive activist who hopes his music can create an escape for listeners from these tumultuous times that we find ourselves in. I know how you feel. It's a 24 second news cycle, even in the Biden administration. I thought we were all gonna be at brunch, liars. Anyways, uh, his, 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 new, his new track that's uh, coming out this month is an anti-war track that relates to the senseless, endless wars and how they relate to so many other issues, a lack of funds for public services, forcing migration patterns, uh, contributing to the climate crisis and creating racial inequity globally. Wow, lots there. Uh, you're on mute just as a heads up. Welcome to the show, he was. Let's see. Okay, can you there hear me? You are. All right, we can perfect. hear you. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Coming. Yeah, of course. I just want to say how happy I am to be here. I think I let you know I was a subscriber to your show on day one. I watched, uh, you know, your campaign for public advocate. I'm so inspired by, you know, you running on a thirty dollar minimum wage. Obviously, that conversation is happening now. So. Couldn't be more thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah, that. Of course. So let's let's talk a little bit about your music. Why why now? Um, what inspired you? And 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 we, I wish we could play it, but there's all these rules on YouTube. So gotcha. uh, yeah. go check out. We'll put the link up so you guys can check out uh, your music right now. So awesome. what inspired you to come forward? Yeah. So, okay. So I've been doing music pretty much my whole life. Like music is my life. I dropped out of high school when I was 17 to focus on it full time. Um, I changed my artist name to He Was about a year and a half ago, and I moved to Spokane, Washington, where I'm working with this amazing producer named Blazar. Um, we made this song here that you're showing now called Whole Thing with Afroman, uh, which Love was it. cool. Um, and yeah, so we um, basically got this thing that's called a brief, uh, where TV shows and movies are looking for very specific types of songs. So they were, were looking for an anti-war cover. So me and uh, my producer started looking at, you know, old anti-war songs. And the one that stuck out to me was this song called Two Plus Two by Bob Seger. We instantly mm. loved it and just got to recording it. We made it in one day. We sent it in um, to pitch it for this opportunity. And then we didn't get the opportunity. So <laughs> then we... As you know, many artists have to go right. through in their lives, been there. <laughs> exactly. You, you send a hundred in and you hope you get one. But, um, yeah. you know... We, now we have this song that we really love. So we just kind of started getting to thinking about what we wanted to do with the project and the music video if we were to release it. And I knew that, you know, it's not about me, right? We're not going to have me walking down the street, you know, whatever, you know, wearing different outfits. It's got to be about the issue because it's a very important issue. So, you know, me being a political junkie, I just started reaching out to progressive activists and leaders like yourself, like Shahid Buttar, uh, Jen Perlman, uh, Ben Burgess, who I know you know, uh, you know, to get quotes about anti-imperialism for this music video that I wanted to make. Uh, yeah, and that's kind of the origins of it. And then I just realized how much I love talking about politics, loved interviewing these people. So I decided to make a whole YouTube show out of it. So what started as me looking for content for this music video turned into 
me being a YouTube political commentator. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> this is really amazing because I think, um, you know, some people say like, well, that's just online and online isn't real life. But I, <laughs> there, there's an extent to that in terms of, of like mobilizing and organizing and we, you know, it, they go hand in hand. But, mm-hmm. but it's amazing to see how many folks around this country and progressives are inspired by YouTube shows, by music. I mean, we get notes all the time from folks just saying like uh, one of our guests inspired them to start an organization or to run for office. Yeah. And it's extremely powerful. And I, the, the biggest one that I recommend, I recognize is um, when I was at TYT, I don't know if I've ever told the story publicly. Uh, when I was at TYT, I, we, we started doing, um, we were covering the IDC, the, the Independent Democratic Conference, which mm-hmm. was eight Democrats who were caucusing the Republicans uh, per Cuomo's guidance and holding up all progressive legislation in New York State, which is a, an overwhelmingly Democratic state and now has a right. supermajority. So we started doing this work, and I remember I lobbied very hard uh, to cover New York politics, and, and there were some people who didn't agree, and then there's some people said, no, go for it, go for it. So we started covering it, and I, I went to this conference um, in Binghamton, and a woman named Alexandria Ocasio, oh. not Cortez, Ocasio, oh, okay. walked up and said, <laughs> I've been watching TYT, and I'm really inspired to run for office. I've never, I don't think I've told this story publicly. And, uh, and I, but I always think about that. Anytime anybody says this stuff doesn't matter, my God, (laughs) could you imagine, (laughs) uh, you know, learning about the mechanics of politics through, 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 through YouTube shows and being inspired. And then she went to Standing Rock and, and that motivated her to run. Um, and how many people have been inspired to run because of AOC, including myself, by the way. So it comes full circle. So this type of work is extremely influential and extremely um, important. And, you know, people have a lot of choices in their lives and how they can, can make money and, and, and spend their time. And I just want to thank you for, for stepping up and doing this because um, there are a lot of folks who love music, but to put in activism, involve activism in your music and share it on as many platforms as possible. Um, it's yeah. really powerful and it takes a lot of work. So thank you so much. I mean, when people say that Twitter isn't real life, I take personal offense to that because I live on Twitter and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Twitter I, takes offense to that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've been honored to talk to so many Twitter influencers on my show, which I think is really cool because we have this mix of, you know, talking to high profile um, congressional candidates and people like I, you know, I mentioned Shahid, um, you know, and all those people, but also Twitter influencers, people like MSDNC right over there, who is this amazing parody account that makes fun so of MSNBC. Good. They're oh so, my God, funny. They, so funny. So <laughs> funny. Um, you know, Pat the Burner, all these six Rome, um, who actually yeah. just got his account taken down on Twitter, which everyone's really upset about. What? Yeah, it just got taken oh, down. I'm, I don't know why. Um, but yeah, so, so my point is, you know, I always ask these Twitter influencers what got them involved in politics, what brought them onto Twitter, and I always get these interesting answers. And what I find is there are people that are radicalized by their experiences, and then there are people like me who had very privileged upbringings. You know, I wasn't rich, but I never worried about food. I never worried about um, money at all. Um, so for me, I really lived this kind of like, life of ignorance and it wasn't until i watched a lot of progressive media 
like QIT, hmm. like Michael Brooks, Majority Report, um, you know, all of these different shows, you know, obviously later on The Hill Rising and your show, Katie Halper, all of those, um, you know, and, and obviously the introduction of, you know, Bernie Sanders into my life. Uh, oh, that guy. Yeah, that, that person, you know. <laughs> he didn't inspire anybody. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know. It's, Nobody I, I, cares about it, as Hillary Clinton exactly. said, or whatever she said. <laughs> my point is, I'm so thankful for the activism of people on Twitter and on, on YouTube in these places that aren't real life, I guess, that, you know, showed me a perspective of there are people who are really suffering. There are major differences between candidates and the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is not necessarily the good guy. And that is not something that I knew when I grew up in a very liberal town in a very liberal state where everyone worshipped Obama and worshipped Hillary. And I was just made to feel like, if you're a good person, those are the good guys. You can't criticize them. It was, um, you know, I, I, back when I was on Bernie's campaign in, in 2016, we were touring around and, and uh, you know, we'd even be surprised by some of the turnout. Like it just, it, it was happening so quickly. Right. And um, remember we said if, if it hadn't been for social media, if it hadn't been for uh, some some like revolutions happening with campaign finance. None of this would have happened. Right. Um, his ability to raise off of small dollar donations disrupted the democratic business model, the party business model, and so we suddenly realized like there were people who who did have bolder ideas and addressed like the real systemic issues in in, in this country, and um, and it happened simultaneously while you know, we came out of two unpopular wars as we, the economy had crashed, Occupy Wall Street, the, you know, the most diverse uh, generation in history that was going to do worse than its parents. It's never happened before, right? right. And the internet. Um, so all of the, the convergence of all these things really uh, gave rise to this revolution. And of course, you know, Senator Sanders has hasn't changed one bit. So that helps too. <laughs> um, all right. He was, we will put your, uh, your link to your Spotify and, and your Amazing. YouTube show. So everybody go check you out and thank you for, for committing to the movement and, and really putting cool. your time and energy into it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Anytime. Cool. Thanks. All right. We will be right back with Rep Rab and Arun Chowdhury to talk about all the crazy things that are happening right this very second. I even have to catch up during the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am so excited to have our first guest, uh, Arun Chowdhury, who is the star of the book club right now. Uh, I re-listened. I got to tell you, I re-listened to our It was the first podcast. one, right? So like- No, it wasn't. It wasn't. No bar, you know? No, no. Harvey K was the first one. He was the star oh, last week. Let's shoot. make sure to oh, give okay. Harvey K due yeah. credit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, Arun Chowdhury, of course, is a political filmmaker. Uh, he is the star of the, the TNS book club uh, this month because we, not this month, this week, because we just uh, finished up The Plunket of Tammany Hall, which is a brilliant book. You got to check it out. If you're not part of the book club, you missed it. Uh, you can check out the book club at patreon.com slash the show. And yeah, I mean, Arun, I, I, was, I, I re-listened to it and because we did it really early in the morning for me. Uh, of course, Iran is the, for, the first White House videographer. He worked under President Obama in the White House, and he was the creative director for the Bernie Sanders 2016 uh, race. Welcome to the Nomi Key Show, Iran. Good to be here. It's good to be here. Oh, 
I think we also have rep rap. There we go. Yeah, rep rap is. Uh, yeah, that was professional. Out. I had to like draw us. that out a little bit, make sure yeah, rep yeah, rap yeah. was all set. <laughs> they teach us that in hosting school. I don't know if you guys know. <laughs> Pull Can you back see the me? curtain. I can't see a rep rap. Where'd you go? They didn't teach me that in hosting school. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on here. They don't like me. Oh. Uh-oh. Oh, there we go. That little thing yeah. that covers the. the <laughs> That's what it was. The, the privacy the, guard was guarding the privacy, privacy guard, the Amish, yeah. you know, uh, hack. <laughs> the Amish hack. All right, guys, crazy things happening right now. Um, yeah. I, I blew out a candle yesterday for my birthday and I wished that Wall Street would collapse. And oh my God, <laughs> am I getting what I wanted for my birthday? Now, of course, I'm talking about the GameStop um, stuff. Let's play a qu- real quick clip from CNBC because. Uh, folks are melting down. Uh, it, they're just having going into complete meltdown uh, totally. over what's happening on Wall Street. The reason the market is doing what it's doing is people are sitting at home getting the checks from the government, okay? And this fair share is a bullshit concept. It's just a way of attacking wealthy people. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's inappropriate. We all got to work together and pull together. Sorry, Who's this I, we that we're talking about? I love that. I love how mad he is. <laughs> God, this is just another way to attack rich people with money. It's so <laughs> tough for them, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, my fear for is that these, two, these mythical $2,000 checks are being used to take down rich people, but also the reports say totally. that the majority of the people who got the $2,000 checks were actually well off. There's a disconnect. Isn't it a shock that there's a disconnect right now between Wall Street and us? I, I, I don't know. Rip Rab, like, what are you guys going to do to fix this? <laughs> yeah, good. You get in the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Hmm. Well, <laughs> well, you know, I'm, um, so I'm on the Finance Committee, and my first term uh, on that committee, uh, Republicans were having a hearing about... Uh, uh, the inheritance tax. And one of my colleagues called it the death tax. And uh, I took the mic and I said, wait, they're taxing dead people? That's, that's awful. Oh, that's a shame. And he, he knew I was messing with me. And he muttered, commie. And ever since I saw him, yeah. <laughs> ever since I see Thank him in you. the hallway, I say, hey, commie <laughs> lover. And like... It, so what I'm saying is just the, the mindset of folks who believe that um, uh, the, the, the primacy of, of Wall Street, the, uh, the centrality of anything that protects the wealthy class being somehow inherently better or American or patriotic is absurd because the, the, the inherent flaw in capitalism is that it doesn't create more capitalists. So the, the idea about the American dream, and George Carlin said the only way you can believe in the American dream is if you're asleep, right? Is that <laughs> you can become a capitalist. But if you look at the data, the data uh, show that uh, very few people have what it takes to build capital because of income inequality, of course, because of wealth inequality, which is staggering when you do it uh, across uh, race. Um, we don't own stocks and bonds. The average American doesn't own a lot of stocks and bonds. The vast majority of American households um, 
participate in Wall Street indirectly through a 401k or if they work for, uh, you know, a university or nonprofit, a 403b. But that's not the majority of workers. So the majority of Americans don't actually have direct access to Wall Street. And so the Trumps of the world and other folks, oligarchs and so forth, they're talking about the Wall, Wall Street as though that is the center of our economy when it's not. The financialization of our national economy is a fairly new and mm. deeply problematic thing that we have to talk about. And even when you listen to like the good guys like NPR, at the top of the hour, they'll talk about Wall Street as though that's relevant to most Americans, and it's not. Of all the metrics you could point to on a daily or weekly basis about what what is happening in our economy and our communities, that should not be at the top of the list. And it's so distinctly the idea of democracy being inserted in our economy that is anathema. That is what gets these folks so rankled up and in a froth, uh, you know, all over cable. It, it, you know, and I think that's the same thing when it comes to sort of anti-union policies and it, like the sort of, you know, the freedom that people talk about is really only the freedom of the right and the extreme right. The idea of democracy in our economy is forbidden. Right. Well, Ron, I mean, I, I, I can't help but thinking about today was as I was preparing the open, um, Europe, like there's something systemically different in our model versus the European model, you know, obviously every country in, in, in the EU is different, but is it because we're so like short-term Wall Street focused? I mean, literally it, 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 the, the quarterly model um, is, it's just infused in every single aspect of society, whether it's media buys, which you're very familiar with, or uh, campaign finance deadlines, which both of you are very familiar with, or, or just, I mean, the way that reporting about our economy functions off of how Wall Street's doing. I just, when I'm in Europe, I don't feel like that's part of the conversation. It doesn't start from there. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily start from here, except it does. I mean, the massive amount of kind of money taken since the age of discovery, quote unquote, uh, has been extracted from the global South by Europe specifically. And that money you know, it's it's the oldest money there is sort of in terms right. of old money and it's in investments. It's behind every investment we see. It finds its way into the US and other places because it can have more fun there. And again, in capitalism, we give the money itself power. So, you know, it can go places and do things. So yeah, you don't see it here, but that's because I think you're big, you know, still aristocratic families, your oligarchs, uh, wherever they are, are expressing that money from far away. But there's a reason America has more billionaires, you know, per capita than some of these places. Though also in that, we, we don't have any guardrails on the system. You just, you, you, you make it up and you do whatever. I mean, uh, let's, let's, let's show that tweet that Walker Bragman posted about Robinhood. Uh, Robinhood is actively intervening to try to stop people from playing the market the way, you know, Wall Street regularly does. So the only oversight that's happening right now is is from these companies trying to stop regular old old folks from uh, getting involved. Um, there's also a, a lawsuit. This is amazing. I mean, these are just, it's, it's happening so quickly. So there's a class action filing. Um, Alex Peter posted it. The 13th point is really the, the key point. 
On or about March 23rd, 2016, Robinhood's official Twitter account stated, quote, let the people trade, end quote. They have since disregarded (laughs) their mantra and have blocked access for millions of customers to trade particular securities. I mean... Meanwhile, there are no lawmakers speaking up about this. Uh, If anything, it's to prevent this from happening again, because what, the the markets are going to be destabilized by by folks who are smarter? Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) what's what's the answer to this? Um, There's a there is a Republican answer, though. Let's let's show that that slide of uh, the New York State Republican, young Republicans, is that what they are? The young Republicans? Oh gosh. Oh, you're gonna love this. The Occupy one. Oh, we don't have that. Breaking news happening really quickly as it's all going down. Oh, we have it, let's play that. It's not a clip, it's just a slide. The Young Republican Club has called for a reoccupy Wall Street action this Sunday totally. in Zuccotti Park. You love to see it. <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm kind of confused here. What? I think they want to give power back to Wall Street. I don't know. What Let's scroll down in that thread. Maybe there's some more explanation. This I mean, I think so- they're coming out for for people trying to invest in, you know, AMC and GameStop. They're saying they should be allowed to participate. Oh, so these are the young Republicans who want to also get in on this because God forbid, like- They're you know, still in it for the principles. They don't realize that actually, they haven't been told in the secret <laughs> closet yet that it's all made up and that huge portions of our economy are a fiction. Okay, so this is, but this is ultimately the question. I mean, this is our economy for all of the, the criticisms of MMT, you know, oh, it's too mystical. It's not accurate at all. What is more mystical than Wall Street? Literally, like this is this is exactly These the point. These two companies, you're not allowed to. You can only sell. You can't buy. You're like you just made that. Like if any game that a six year old played with another six year old, where you made the rules up that fast, would not be considered fair in the neighborhood. And I don't think that in the general neighborhood that is America, this feels particularly fair. Um, Rep. Rab, you, you wrote Invisible Capital, so I feel like you might have some thoughts. Yeah, so, you know, the interesting thing about my book is people say, oh, well, I'm not into finance. I'm like, okay, my book is not about finance. It's not an academic book. It's about how privilege operates through the, in the context of structural inequality as it relates to uh, business and entrepreneurship and the mythology around, you know, all you need to do is work hard, have a great idea and a good attitude, and you can be successful like me. And in the first page of my book, I referenced Donald Trump in 2010 <laughs> before birtherism and then saying he's the poster boy for everything mm-hmm. wrong with American entrepreneurship and the mythology around it. And uh, invisible capital are all the non-financial assets that people use either knowingly or unknowingly that is invisible to most other people. And so uh, all right, the right. folks who are in positions of power who are doing things behind the scenes um, are you know negatively influencing the playing field to benefit you know folks like them? That's the invisible capital, and invisible capital can be used for good. Too often, it's used for bad. But it, it is that it's that privilege that associates certain um, folks with certain status and identities in society. And this is a perfect example. Like a run says, oh, like we like democracy when it works for hmm. us in specific ways. 
right? <laughs> but I don't like, and so part of the, the, the issue I take in the book is we need to democratize entrepreneurial opportunities. So it's not just middle-class and then affluent people with the dream creating things, but it's everyone who has the capacity to innovate in ways that ideally create shared prosperity. So democracy is actually, I mean, well, we just saw it with the insurrection, right? That was part of the democratic process was uh, counting the electoral votes, even if it goes against your guy. Well, we don't like democracy if it doesn't work out for us. So we're going to bludgeon um, a white cop with a with an American flag because they got in our way of the type of world we want to live in where democracy is optional. So fascinating about this experience and how quickly it happened is it really does pull back the curtain on, I mean, not even just two weeks ago with with the coup, on their hypocrisy, on their white supremacy, on their inability to recognize that like, I mean, they're they're exposing themselves for not playing by the same rules that they profess all day long. Um, I want to, for personal reasons, uh, there's a great tweet about Puerto Rico now for just a reminder, uh, Puerto Rico has this debt, right? And and uh, they have incredible austerity for the last you know, several years um, as they've been hit with two storms. Hurricane Maria wiped out the island, uh, the power for almost a year in some parts. Um, and they've suffered from the consequences of COVID. Uh, and yet they still have to pay this debt, this, this uh, manufactured debt, let's just say, as there's a fiscal control board that's been overseeing uh, the island for a while. Let's, let's, sh- let's uh, put that tweet up real quick. I love this. Andrew Padilla, check him out on Twitter. Reddit just cost Wall Street firms as much money as the entirety of Puerto Rico's colonial debt. Wonder which gets bailed out first. This, in short, you know, highlights our priorities in this country. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it's not just hypocrisy. I mean, the way that Occupy Wall Street uh, highlighted these issues 10 years ago. And yet here we are, worse inequality. The headlines of the New York Times today are that who got bailed out during COVID? Not working people, wealthy people. Whose profits soared? Wall Street in the middle of what is likely to be Great Depression 2.0. And the only reason it's not Great Depression 2.0 is because they keep manufacturing, like boosting Wall Street. I mean, it's just, it's just like total bullshit. <laughs> Well, here's the thing that people don't understand. And remember, the vast majority of Americans have no direct contact with Wall Street and may never have direct access to Wall Street or, and therefore, limited understanding of how it works, both in terms of how it negatively impacts them on all fronts and also how we can impact it. Because what people need to either remember or, uh, or just know for the first time is that these capital markets they are public markets, right? They are controlled by the federal government. We decide who runs the executive branch for all those elected positions who then appoint people to influence, monitor, and ideally improve uh, what happens in these capital markets. So it's the Security Exchange Commission, et cetera, et cetera. They are public markets. They, when a company goes public, we need to understand that there is a there should be a level of transparency and accountability to the general public. Well, what does that mean for those of us in one state or another? Well, in our different states, we have laws that determine what it takes to be incorporated as a business. And in some states, they have something called public benefit corporations, where you're, you are a for-profit business 
but you have a double and sometimes a triple bottom line where you are not penalized and you cannot be um, held liable for having a mission that is more than just profit maximization, right? Right now, the standard is you have to be about profit maximization, maximization where it's about um, uh, sh maximizing shareholder value. And that's just a fancy term for making as much money as humanly possible without breaking any laws. Um, and Maybe. <laughs> we, now we have, right? And, but if the laws are inherently problematic, then even doing it legally doesn't actually help us. So if from a state-to-state -state basis, we can develop a business class and organizational structures that are in line with a more progressive view of what it means to be a stakeholder as a business that is not created for profit maximization and actually creates what I call in my book, community wealth. I mean, how likely is that going to happen, do you think, Iran? in our lifetimes? Well, I mean, I do think at the end of the day, it's, it is a communications problem, like uh, a lot of things, which is just that people, uh, ordinary people don't feel connected with any of these terms or any of these ways of thinking. They just see something that feels amazingly and inherently unfair and then don't know, uh, and then b don't have a, a sit, but then are told sort of by people who they trust in their party and other people that we have to kind of get back to normal. It's not supposed to be this way and sort of explaining to people that it is supposed to be this way. And that's why we have to change it. It's just a much bigger proposition. And it does sort of start to sound like political revolution, this, that, the other things that are sort of the, the, the things people worry about as being messaging triggers, but it's actually just being honest with people and being like, the thing you want everything to be, we don't have that and it'd be cool. So we should really go for it. You know, let's work on this American dream thing. Well, the curtain's been pulled back now. I mean, there's no going back to normalcy. I mean, this is what's so frustrating about uh, the rhetoric coming out of the Biden administration. I know he's probably just trying to calm things down in, 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 in light of the coup. But on the other hand, you have progressives who support or all of the other candidates supporters who supported other candidates for other for, for reasons that they didn't think Joe Biden was the path towards uh, solving these systemic issues that are have, have blown up to another level. Um, and again, the the curtain has been pulled back. I want to show this clip of, of AOC who is talking specifically about this curtain being pulled back and exposing white supremacy, which is just it's always been there. It's been, you know, uh, it's been covered up through things like low taxes and, and all the other gimmicks that the Republicans um, have put on the table. But ultimately, hasn't it always just been about white supremacy? Let's play that clip. When I hear that Representative McCarthy is going to pull a member aside who has made white supremacist sympathizing comments, um, the thing that I think is, what is he going to tell them? Keep it up? because there are no consequences in the Republican caucus for violence. There's no consequences for racism, no consequences for misogyny, no consequences for insurrection. And no consequences means that they condone it. It means that that silence is acceptance and they want it mm. because they know that it is a core animating political uh, energy for them. And this is extremely dangerous, an extremely dangerous threshold that we have crossed because we are now 
away from acting out of fealty to their president that they had in the Oval Office. And now we're talking about fealty to white supremacist organizations as a political tool. And for, you know, Republicans that are in that caucus that are unwilling to hold that accountable or to distance themselves from it, um, we really, really need to ask ourselves what they are evolving into. Um, Because this is no longer about a party of limited government. Um, This is about something much more nefarious. Well said. I think it was always about it in my mind. Um, yeah, you know, I was going to say it was never, it was never about limited She's a government. stateswoman. She's <laughs> got to be a little bit more. But she mentions this line. I mean, there was a line, right? There was a line that they never at least publicly uh, crossed or sided with because then the shtick would be, you know, I think the business model of the Republican Party used to be, and I'm saying like maybe the last, you know, 50 years, let's just leave it there that the, the, the Bush era Republican Party would not publicly play into racism. They would denounce it. I mean, and they'd use dog whistles. Primaries. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing, but I think what she's trying to say is, is it, it, this wouldn't be condoned or, or um, they wouldn't look the other way. The McCarthy's wouldn't look the other way under the Bush era. Yeah, it's, they, they replaced the dog whistle with a bullhorn. But it's, better same, side. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same stuff, right? And you know, I gotta say, as a fifty-year-old black man, I'm I'm concerned about the level of of um, extremism, but obviously not surprised. Um, I'm more concerned. Um, so I'm both concerned and hopeful. I've seen a critical mass of. Um, newly politicized or not particularly politicized white people speak up around race that I've never seen before. And that's very uh, reassuring. So it's not the usual suspects. It's, it's regular white folk who are not involved in all kinds of things who are saying, this is really messed up. So that's actually good. The, the, the challenge I'm having is uh, when are white people going to monitor other white people and hold them to account because that's not the job of BIPOC folk. Yeah. We, we don't have that, that luxury or authority or uh, agency. That has to be white folk working within their own respective community. Or even the numbers. There's a lot of white people out there and they're, you know, who knows what they're all up to. We, we couldn't keep track. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, I mean, how does, how does that happen in the Republican Party? I mean, do you, like, how, how do you, I mean, no one's going to listen to like George W. Bush acting like black people suddenly matter. I mean, don't forget what Kanye said. I hate to quote him. Where, but. where is the political penalty been for anyone who has denounced white supremacy, Donald Trump, anything even Trump adjacent? None, quite the opposite. You know, you have people piling on the 10 folks who voted for impeachment, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think you can make a case that Donald Trump befuddled some voters in Georgia and things got real confusing there at the end of you shouldn't vote and if QAnon and their babies or whatever. But like the only thing uh, that, that, that I would say is the, the Republican Party the, themselves and the elites have made there be no political cost and therefore what AOC is saying rings true. Yeah, I, so I agree with that. I think maybe white consumers could have an outsized influence. And I don't mean white voters, but consumers, right? When these corporations don't want to be on the wrong side of history, 
as bad as their business models are, as predatory as they are, they want to look like they're on the right side. They flash a Black Lives Matter sign or they do whatever, you know, you know, PR that they do. But if a critical mass of white consumers say, um, we don't want you giving to uh, extremist candidates, we don't want you supporting X, Y, and Z, um, when you shut off the spigot to uh, fundraising, I assure you, you will get people's attention. Now, it, it may not, that's not the only way to do it, but it would be an interesting way because obviously our political economy is influenced by the capital, by capitalism. It's all connected in the United States, most of all. So um, those corporations who uh, cut major checks to folks in Congress, um, directly or indirectly, um, are folks who are very sensitive to what consumers think. And none of them, even the most, I mean, even the worst uh, corporations that we can just bash, they don't like that bad press either. And I, I just think that there needs to be more creativity and coordination amongst white communities to figure this out, because this is not the job of, of black and brown folk. White communities band together. Oh, that's a concerning comment in my mind. But. No, I mean, the most concerning thing, not to just make it a little worse right at the end here, though, is because normally you'd ask for law enforcement look, to look into it. But part of the problems we saw in the 6th is that there is just a perfect spectrum without an exact break in between white supremacy and law enforcement as we understand it in America. Well, but that's actually a, a great kind of uh, way to, to, to drive a wedge is, you know, the FBI has been investigating white supremacy and law enforcement around this country for years. Where have those investigations gone? Just like the investigations of what's going to happen with Wall Street. Nowhere. Yeah, that's right. Nowhere. Rep Rab, representing the 200th District of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Always a pleasure. Ron Chowdhury in Berlin, just doing some political filmmaking and, you know, taking on fascists. That's what he does. He just organizes and, and helps those candidates fight the fascists because it's spreading a little bit too quickly. Um, always a pleasure. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We will see you next week. And I'm going to do some shout outs because yesterday I didn't have time. So I'm going to cover uh, our super chats from yesterday. Thank you to everybody who contributed. Uh, we have Ian Kinzel says, I mean, we could do a $30 minimum wage, but then I'd feel obligated to actually contribute to the workplace for a change. Very funny. Olivia Allies says, happy birthday, Nomiki. Keep up the great work. Thank you for the love for the super chat. Jonathan Tipton Myers says, why do progressives use the decentralized movements, blockchain, Bitcoin, whose trading philosophy lead to GameStop? Interesting. For social economic power. That is a fascinating question. I have actually put out some requests for... Um, some experts on Bitcoin uh, crypto to come on because I, when I was doing um, reporting in Puerto Rico uh, in 2017 and 18, I ended up uh, overlapping and doing some reporting around the crypto communities on the island and just colonial aspects of, of the crypto world. I know that there are progressive forces in crypto. I would be interested in, in, exploring that and using that as a vehicle. I think, I think it's fascinating. I personally don't know enough about, I mean, I know about the model of crypto, but not how it could uh, disrupt, you know, different industries. Um, but I like the way you think. Art, always sitting there, love. Thank you, Art, for the love. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska says, I'm a delegate at the state, what? At the state GOP meeting to set yearly agenda. 
how did you do that? Should I advocate for a pro-Medicare for all position as rural investment or to take a neutral position on BLM so our cities have less GOP obstruction? Can't do both or more because I'm already on thin ice with the party. What? That's fascinating. Um, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I guess we have to think about what, where the the vote is closer. Is there a vote in the state? Think about like the like whatever whatever you could back could actually either neutralize something really horrible in the Republican Party in terms of votes in Nebraska, or add some votes to our side, the left, um, by having you there. That's fascinating. I'd love to hear how that goes. Um, as always, thanks for the love. Thank you to Harvey K, who's in the chat right now on uh, YouTube and on Twitch. I guess he's in both places. And big thank you to Midi Docs and Mario Q for working those algorithms. Huge thank you to our moderators, of course, Bob Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel on YouTube and Dorian Sapiens and A Difficult Truth on Twitch for keeping the chat room uh, troll free. And I think, I think that's it. If I missed anybody, we make sure, we'll make sure to get to you tomorrow. Um, oh wait, here we go. I missed a few there. I knew I had some. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska who made a comment earlier said, happy birthday, Nomi Key. It's coincidentally my younger sister's birthday too. Like you, her profession is also advocating for progressive policies. Since she's a social worker in central Nebraska, you feminists keep us moral. Happy birthday to your sister. I don't know her name. And if I had a shofar, I would do that. Hmm, that noise, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Thank you to JL for the birthday love, wishing me a successful 2020 one and everybody else who gave, I will get to. I'm just trying to get it all organized right now, but you are all amazing. Thank you for making my day so special. I wish I could have responded to every single person, but unfortunately uh, I lose, I mean, it's, 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 it's a lot on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And thank you to the majority report for giving me a shout out and flooding my email box as a result. We'll see you tomorrow. I am gonna try to celebrate a little bit of my birthday tonight if I can. So cheers to everybody. Have a wonderful 2021 to all the Aquariuses out there. I know there's a bunch of you who've, who've messaged me. Happy birthday to, to, to you too. We will see you tomorrow for Fem Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here, YouTube and Twitch. Thank you all.